Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Sorry if you're behind the pillar. <laughs> um, really good to be, really genuinely great to be with you. I was here at this venue for the Scent Conference a few months ago, but there's nothing like being with the church family, um, just to be around the church. There's nothing like it. Um, I love conferences, but to be with the church family um, is just so special, and it's so, so encouraging to, to be in a gathering that's so large, but also that feels so kind of intimate and so spiritually rich. It's just wonderful. So thank you so much for your warm welcome. I really appreciate that. Really looking forward to getting into Ephesians and carrying on with the series um, today. Um, you, someone might have referred to, um, at one point, the, the, the commentary by Watchman Nee on Ephesians, one called Sit, Walk, Stand. And the whole idea being that the first, um, the first part of Ephesians is really, it's, a, it's, a, it's, we don't, it's not about anything about what we do. It's all about what God has done for us in Jesus. And we've just really got to sit in it. And the, in the primary posture of the Christian is not to kneel, but to sit. It's literally like we do nothing. It's all been done for us. And through faith, we come into all that God has accomplished for us by Jesus. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. And the early, early part of Ephesians, really nailing that home again and again and again. Then we get into the walk section, which we're currently in, um, where a common way of talking about how you do life in the Hebrew language and thinking was about walking, walking the walk. So it's the, this is about how we live in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus. If we're here today as a believer, what does it mean for us now that we've accepted Christ? What does it mean for us now that we've said, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord? What does it mean for us that we've believed the gospel? What, what sort of life change is now involved? What sort of revolution is going to happen? And then when you get in a few weeks' time to uh, the latter half of chapter 6, stand the reality of Christian warfare, but you'll get there, so I won't talk about that um, now. So we're in chapter 5, and um, as, he's, as I said a minute ago, just make a couple of comments before we get into today's passage, verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully, about how, think about how you live. So important. If you're going to own this gospel message and say, yeah, I, I belong to Christ, really think carefully about what that means. For your lifestyle, make the best use of your, the time. The days are evil. Don't be, don't be naive. It's not a, a neutral situation out there. There's a, there, there, there's, there's, there is a spiritual reality going on out there, meaning that the whole air is charged with um, a, a narrative against God and against Christ and the gospel. We've got to be honest and wake up uh, to that. Therefore, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And then we have these different outworkings of being filled with the Spirit. I know you focused on this last week, singing songs and hymns, thanksgiving, what we've been doing this morning. Wonderful. But then seamlessly it goes um, into submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so this life of the Spirit seamlessly goes into our relationships. It's, uh, wouldn't it be easy if it was just singing and praising the Lord? Wouldn't that be amazing? That was like, basically, Jesus says, okay, what I require from you now is to lift your hands up and enjoy really great songs about the gospel. Just do that till you get to, don't worry about any annoying Christians that you've got to deal with. Just sing to me, because I'm perfect. Yeah, great, Lord. Actually, says, no, I want, to, I want to transform you. And the, one of the main ways I'm going to do that is I'm going to help you. I'm going to, in your relationships, we don't want you to be isolated. Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I don't want you to be isolated. Call you into 
community. And you can work out how to grow and mature as we butt up against one another and have to work things out. And so this re- being filled with the Spirit has a direct impact upon your relationships. And it's not just the singing and, the, and, the, and what we were doing earlier, which is fantastic, but it's also what happens after the service, what happens tomorrow. It's all of that stuff in the, the Spirit-filled life. And if... If you get filled with the Spirit and it has no impact at all upon your relationships, you have to ask yourself what spirit you've been filled with. You have to start to ask yourself the difficult questions, which sometimes can be a really healthy and helpful thing um, to do. This is a 22-point sermon, uh, unfortunately, but we're already on point three, so don't worry. Um, But there's a lot to say, there's a lot to go into, and um, I'm going to read and then try and set the scene a little bit. So we're going to read, so... um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then pick up on verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you that it's breathed out by your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus, your words are spirit and life. Hallelujah. And we just pray for real wisdom today. Like, I need wisdom, Lord, in preaching this, teaching this passage. I need you to be sharpening me, quickening me, speaking to me as I'm on my feet. I need you to be leading and guiding me through. I pray for my listeners. I want to pray, Lord, that you would give them ears to hear what you are saying. I want to pray you give them discernment. I want to pray help every hearer. Help those, Lord, who love this passage. Help those who find it hard. Help us engage with this passage in the light of what we're currently working through in the wider culture. Lord, give us grace, I pray, as we engage with this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen. So when I started reading, you went, oh, I get why it's a 22-point sermon now. It's that passage. It's that, um, that passage that is uh, it's not just theologically rich and complex. It's also culturally hot. You understand what I'm saying? When you get a passage that's just theologically rich and complex, you can find yourself saying, what does that mean? When it's culturally hot, you find yourself saying, what on earth does that mean? Okay, because you're, you're trying to work through the implications. You're trying to work through the other things that you're hearing in day-to-day life. And how does that square with this? You're trying to work through what family and friends and colleagues and neighbours who don't believe in Jesus will think of it. You're, you're, immediately you're going there, you're trying to think through um, what you yourself, given your own life experience, how does that square with that? All of that stuff starts to happen. When you're in a passage that kind of 
for the most part, doesn't seem to be challenging and butting up against wider cultural issues. You tend to just, yeah, fine. But with one like this, for those of us who are in the West, increasingly secularized uh, culture, um, and in, it, it just, it, we've really got to look at it carefully and think things through uh, in, a deep, in a deep way. So, um, quick cultural observation. We are transfixed with personal fulfillment as a culture on an individual level and not so concerned with the common good. Okay? So just a little bit of a cultural insight. In, you know, not, it's not probably going to be any great revelation for most of us. But in the West, if you travel, you begin to understand your own culture better because you, you come back from where you've been and you notice things with fresh eyes. In the West, we are fixated with the individual. It's, it's I before it's we. Does that make sense? Go to other parts in the world and it's we before it's I. In the West, it's, it's I. And you'll, you'll notice it, I think, I notice if a lot of um, Western athletes in the Olympics, when they were interviewed after they won a medal, the narrative was repetitively, I'm trying to inspire those of the younger generation to have realized their dreams. I don't know if you noticed that in Tokyo 2020. It's called Tokyo 2020, but it happened in 2021, didn't it? But did you notice that? If all of, pretty much, I would say 90% of the speeches I heard were, I'm trying to, I'm so glad I won this medal because I want to inspire other younger people to fulfill their dreams. Whereas I think historically it would have been more, it was a real privilege to represent my country. See the difference? I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but you see the difference. One is focused in on individual realization, individual personal fulfillment. The other is thinking more corporately about what I'm a part of. Now, I, do, I would say that I think fundamentally it's, it is a problem, this cultural trend. The reason being that the Bible says that there are two things that I should be focusing my energy on before myself as God and my neighbor. Okay? So the glory of God, the honor of God, the reputation of God, his esteem in the hearts of men and women, the worship of God, the fame of God, that should be my primary occupation, preoccupied with that. And then out of that, the good of others, the loving my neighbor, serving others, thinking, thinking of those around me. Now, of course, you have to, if you're going to do that long term, you have to consider yourself. Of course, you do and look after yourself. I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is, is that self is not the goal. Self is not the goal. Um, now, this is, becomes very relevant when you start thinking about marriage, of course. It's huge, isn't it? Because you, the, 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 you, you want a marriage that's happy for you. <laughs> Am I right? If you don't, some, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, you haven't got to be, you know, sorry, you haven't got to be ashamed. Okay, that's natural. That's natural. But if that's it, if that's really the main thing that's going on, you're going to get, you're going to, you're going to enter all sorts of trouble when you get into Christian marriage, because it's so much bigger than that. It's a big picture deal, and so we need to be aware of this and just engage with this kind of, this kind of thing. So let's look at these first few verses, uh, verses 20. Um, 21, 22, 23, submitting to one another. Are you, ha are you guys okay getting technical on some stuff? Okay, nine of you out of about 400. It's not encouraging. Anyone else up for it? We've got to get into this stuff, right? Listen, I, I, was, I was told a few years ago, and I'll never forget it, never underestimate people's intelligence, never overestimate their knowledge. Okay? 
So if I'm saying stuff, you think, I know this, sorry, there might be some of them that don't. So I'm just trying to say that, so please bear with us. But I think you can all track with this, because I'm not going to underestimate your intelligence. Okay, so, but we're going to get a little bit technical, because we've got to understand what this is getting at, so we can feel peaceful uh, about it and know how to do it, which is the point, right? Once you understand it, then you can do it. So, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then, and then in, in, in the next verse, the word submit is not actually there in the original. It just says, wives to your husbands. Okay? So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then wives to husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So what's it saying? When it's saying submit to one another out of, out of reverence for Christ, there's a lot of debate about what that means. And it tends to be two camps. Here are the two camps. Camp number one says... This means that as Christians, we should all just submit to one another. Literally, it's just the way we live. We're always kind of um, always putting ourselves under one another and kind of um, in that sense saying, no, I'm going to subordinate myself under you um, because that's what Christ did for us. And that's just kind of, that's just kind of how we live. Okay? We're just doing it. That's what we do. Other people say, well, no, hold on a minute. Look, he says submit to one another, but then he says wives to husbands. And then later on, chapter 6, he says children to parents. And then later on, he says bond servants to masters. So he's talking about particular relationships. It's not just back and forth. Everywhere. No, no, no. There are particular relationships where it happens because there's some sort of authority dynamic going on in all of those relationships, although it's in different sorts of ways. So it's not just a random, we're all, do, we're all doing it. It's kind of like, no, it's, it's a certain thing. Now... As I've studied this and thought about this, it's actually not that easy to know which one. And I'll tell you why. Here's why. In the New Testament, there are 91 instances of one another. Okay? Pretty much, well, all of them, because I read through them last night, just to double, just to make sure, all of them are that just kind of one another. Yeah, you do it to me, I'll do it to you, you do it to me, I'll do it to you. Okay, fine. However, when you get to the word submit or be subject to, which is part of what's going on here as well. If you look up that word in the New Testament, this comes up 21 times. Four times it's referring to marriage, so we'll put that to one side. Two times it's kind of ambiguous. It's hard to know about authority dynamics. Put that to one side. All other 15 times it's talking about particular relationships. Wives to husbands, never husbands to wives. Pe children to parents, never parents to children. People to the governing authorities. Never governing authorities to people. So whenever you come up against submit or subject, it's always in particular relationships in a certain direction. So you've got actually quite strong arguments that it could mean that or it could mean that. Have you followed me? Bless you. I'm just, I love, a brilliantly timed sneeze. So uh, I just want to... <laughs> I'm just trying to take you on the journey so you can understand why people disagree on stuff and there are things where you go, we've got to, just, we've got to walk this carefully and really be in the scriptures because actually there's a part of this which in the wider culture is most definitely controversial. Wives submit to husbands. That's really, really controversial these days. And for most of the time when something becomes controversial in the culture, about 10 or 20 years later in the church it becomes controversial. It's <laughs> just the way it goes. Sorry, folks. So it's something that we have to engage with, and it's something that we have to think about. Um, I want to put it to you that it is not one-dimensional. It's not this whole thing. If you, go, if you go in clumsy on this stuff, it's going one-dimensional, one-layered. You're going to not only lose the richness of the, the actual teaching of what's going on here, okay? 
you're going to damage people. That's not good. Difficult to love our neighbor. Okay? And we won't end up acting in ways that represents him, which damages his reputation. Because people start going, well, you're a Christian and you're doing that. So we've got to think about it carefully. I think that you've probably got both things going on at the same time. You've got this sense in which we're all modeling ourselves on Christ. If we're Christians, amen? 15 of us out of 400, okay. It's church, church. I thought it was great, but it's in trouble. No. When I say amen, you can say amen back if you want, right? Amen? amen? There we go. Now we're rolling. Okay, so we all look to, you know, what does Philippians 2 say? You know, be, look, look at Christ who, you know, existed in the very um, being of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to grasp onto, but made himself nothing. It became, even, even became subject to death. You know, became, he totally lowered himself. He subordinated himself. And that tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us that the act of, sub, um, what word did I just say? Subordin- the act of subordinating yourself has been dignified through the gospel. It's been dignified through what Christ has done. It's a very different act from someone subordinating you. They are completely different things. you understand the difference? Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Okay? No one subordinated Jesus. He subordinated himself even to death on a cross. That, in that, that, was, an, that was a powerful thing to do. It was, it's been dignified because it's the very thing we come and celebrate every week is this man who subordinated himself and then was risen and exalted. So it's very, we've got to understand that and get that right. And then we realize, and it's something that we are all called to do. Why? Because we're all called to be more and more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. So it's how we're living. But you've also got this layer on top where Paul is making a particular point, but there's also something going on here. There's another layer. There's another dimension, if you like, to this. There's a particular voluntary, redemptive, powerful, subordinating of themselves that a wife is called to do. We'll come back to that as we get to the end. But for now, I want to leave that there. And we're going to focus on headship now. The reason Paul gives for this subordination, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So he brings in this idea of headship, which again, it's an image. What, what language was the New Testament originally written in? Anyone know? Greek. So the Greek word there is kephali. Okay? But it's, it's, uh, it's being used metaphorically as an image. If you then read it just through with kind of English or wherever you're from, through your native kind of language, in your culture, that image might mean something else. Right? You understand what I'm saying? So if you immediately transpose your own culture's understanding of what that word means straight onto that, you can come up with anything you like. You've got to think it through. What's Paul getting at? What does it mean? In, what, is it, what is Paul? Because it seems like in ancient Greek it could be used in more than one way. So what's Paul getting at? You have to, this is where Bible study is so important, where you take time. If you guys go away and really think about this as a result of this sermon, I'm a happy guy. Okay? 
Don't just go away saying, well, he said some stuff. I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm glad it's over because then we could sing. No, don't do that, okay? So I'm going to take this back. I'm going I'm to meet up with my prayer partners. We're going to open up and have a look at this and try and understand the context better and better and better. I do not think, this might sound controversial, but follow, follow me. I do not think that it's appropriate to simply stand up and say that husband has authority over his wife. I don't think that's appropriate. Now, let me explain why. Number one. The one passage in the Bible where authority is explicitly spoken about in marriage is 1 Corinthians 7, and it says this. It says that a husband has authority over his wife's body, and a wife has authority over her husband's body. It's mutual. It's completely mutual. Now, that would have been utterly radical in those days, but it's, it's still powerful truth in these days. That they are to give themselves to one another. There should never be this kind of idea of withholding one another because it's my body. If you're married, sorry, you know, you, your bodies belong to one another. Now, obviously, there's so many things to talk about within that pastorally, I understand it, but there's a spiritual truth there that, as far as God is concerned, when you get married, you give yourselves to one another physically. Okay? And there's a, there's a, authority basically means freedom or rights, this kind of idea. You have freedom over one another's body. You know, I haven't got to say to my wife, can I, can I put my arm around your shoulder, darling? Would, would that be okay? Just put my hand on her shoulder and hug her. Amen. I want to hear like a sentimental amen. To that. Amen. It's beautiful. And just be together. Just feel at ease with each other. If I want to just, just gently twiddle her toe while we're talking, I can do that. And I do like doing that, I'll be honest. Yeah, she wants to give me a little head massage. She hasn't got to ask. Go for it, darling. But just there's an ease, there's a freedom. We've got, there's an, that's the only place where the word authority is explicitly used to talk about marriage. It's mutual. So whatever's going on, okay, there's layers to it. There's, we mustn't be clumsy and one-dimensional with this kind of stuff. It's not helpful. A husband is never told to exercise authority over his wife, ever. You will not find that in the Bible. You will not find that exhortation. Let me just say this as well. Authority is not a dirty word. It's a beautiful word. It's been so abused, authority, in so many different positions in our culture. I think the last decade has been utterly traumatic. If you've been in the UK, sort of Jimmy Savile onwards, it's just utterly traumatic when you suddenly have realised what those with authority or influence or power what they've been up to, you just go, oh my goodness. It just feels much safer for everyone to completely <laughs> do away with the concept. Actually, we're called to redeem it. It's a beautiful concept. God's in charge. Do you know that? Do you know the kingdom of God is not a democracy? We didn't vote him in. Okay? <laughs> it's a theocracy. He rules. And he does whatever he likes. He's completely unaccountable. Did you know that? He's completely good. But it's a total, you have to have a completely different category for God. But what it does is you go, wow, look, when someone is totally good, look at the blessing that flows when authority is in place. It's why it's protecting. It's not primarily for punishment, it's for protection. So it's a beautiful concept. I'm not doing away with it. I'm just saying to just sort of, if you're, if you're of a more kind of a complementarian persuasion when it comes to the subject of men and women, husbands, wives, you can't say, Husband has authority over his wife. It's, it's, it, that, that's not a helpful way of speaking. What is going on then? 
Here's what's going on. They're role-playing. Anyone like role-play? Anyone in the room like role-play? Don't be embarrassed. I see one hand. There's at least 20 more of you guys. Role-play... There's a spiritual reality, okay? So, even, so listen, okay. So Christ is ahead of the husband's ahead of the wife, even as Christ is ahead of the church. Okay. Now it's not exactly the same, right? Am I right? Okay. It's not exactly, on a number of fronts, on so many, I could talk for hours. But number one, Christ and the church, that dynamic, that relationship, it's eternal. Husbands and wives, it's momentary in the grand scheme of things. Okay. In the new heavens and the new earth, you will you will be brother and sister in Christ forever, but you'll no longer be married. Okay, so it's eternal versus temporary. Number two, Christ and the church, it's not fundamentally equals. Husband and wife is fundamentally equals. You've got two equals. You believe that in a marriage? Good. <laughs> Good. Christ and the church is not, I mean, hallelujah, isn't he wonderful? He's raised us up and seated us with him. What a king. But we're not fundamentally equals. It's different in marriage. Husband and wife, you've got two equals. Equal worth equal dignity, equally made in the image of God. Hallelujah. Okay? So, but it's not, so it's not, even though it says even as, it's not exactly the same. Christ really did save the church. Okay? Amen? Husband doesn't save his wife. Well, maybe you might, you know, I don't know, jump in front of a bus or something. Great. Good stuff. But day to day, it's not salvation. It's, a, it's, a, it's role playing. Now, this is powerful and exciting and inspirational and enough to make a baby cry. Okay? This is good news. Because what you've got is you've got two people in a marriage, both of whom are empowered, both of whom have full agency. Hallelujah. Okay? As total equals. And but what they say is they say this, listen, as well as our relationship being godly, where we're going to serve one another, we're going to look to outdo one another, yes, yes and amen, that we're going to be Christ to one another, yes and amen. Also within that, we're going to tell a bigger story. Through this relationship, we're going to uniquely model what happened in the gospel. We choose to do that. We, we embrace what God has spoken to us is we say, yeah, I, yes, we're going we're to embrace that. We're not going to flatten it out. Because if you flatten this thing out in the name of, well, we're equal and, we, and we're mutual, hallelujah. But if you flatten it out, these roles that are outplayed here, say, well, we're going to just treat each other in a really godly way. Listen, there's plenty of worse things you can do, but you've not chosen the best. Out of a fear of something or, a, or not a full understanding of something, you've missed the glorious transcendent purpose of your marriage, which is to point towards, to image the relationship between Christ and the church. That's an amazing thing. We, those of us who, have, who are married and have been married for a while, you know that you, know, you do go through seasons, right? There's springs and there's summers. Hallelujah! Yeah. Woo! There's autumns and winters. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right? Praise God for the gospel, spring, summer, autumn, winter, where you can look at one another and say, we're still going to tell this story. We're not looking to one another for ultimate meaning. The relationship is not ultimately about you and me. We're caught up in something so much bigger. That's inspiring for a marriage. That's super inspiring. 
And so the image of what's going on here with this whole headship kind of um, idea is seems to be primarily about nourishment. In, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the headship of Jesus over all powers in chapter 1. And he says he's been given as head overall to the church. And so what Paul does here in Ephesians 1, follow me here, is he's, he's using the idea of headship as authority and as rule. Okay, But in that passage, it's not actually referring to his relationship with the church. It's his relationship with everything else. And says Jesus has been given to the church as head overall. And this is the church which is his body. So the image there is Jesus, his body is the church over all things. The actual image in there, Paul isn't talking about the rule of Christ over the church. He's talking about the rule of Christ over all things with the church. Then he uses the image again in chapter 4 of Ephesians, and here it's different again. Here it's the head and the body, but this time there's nourishment coming from the head into the body. As a result, the body grows. It's got the strength to build itself up. So that's the image that I think that Paul is carrying over here in chapter 5. And if you look, he talks about nourishing and cherishing. So the primary, the, the, what Paul, what's in Paul's mind, it seems here, as he's talking about headship, is the role that Christ plays in nourishing and cherishing his church and saying, husbands, do that to your wives. Husbands, take this seriously. A lot of men are good at eating. <laughs> to building up their own body. Loving their own body. That's the imagery as we go, and that's what he's saying is, we can, we can find it. He's saying, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. He's saying, just look, look at what we do. Look at how we look after ourselves. Look how we make sure we're swinging by. I know I've got dinner at home, but I'm going past the McDonald's, and I've got 20 more minutes on a journey. I need a little bit of extra energy just to get me through and over the finish line. Paul is saying, in the same way you're thinking of yourself like that, think about your wife like that. Nourish her. Cherish her. Care about her. Put her first. Pour yourself out for her. Do what Jesus did. Lay yourself down for her. This will set the most wonderful Christ-like tone in your marriage. Her role in this is not passive. We'll get on to what it looks like in a moment. But what the idea is, is that in the same way that Christ pursued the church, there's something that the husband is doing where he's saying, I'm, gonna, I'm going, I'm, I, am, I, am, I am pursuing this woman, and once I've got her, guess what? I'm going to carry on pursuing her. That's a wonderful thing for a wife to enjoy. Husbands make much of her. Why? Jesus makes much of the church. Husbands put her before you. Why? Jesus put the church before himself. Be like Jesus. He's head of the church. He nourishes and cherishes her. Do the same. The idea in the text is that this beautifies her. That this, this headship, this nourishing, this cherishing, it beautifies. It says it so that he he can, so that he did all of this so he can present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, as you treat your wives like this, there's a beautification that goes on. There's a powerful spiritual thing at work where she, she, she becomes, she becomes the, the flower, the wonder, the glory. The, the, your, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and as, as she welcomes that, which is her act of submission. Her act of submission is that she receives you fully as you do that. That is not a passive role. Far from it. 
when a guy goes out of his way to sacrificially love his wife, her response can be the difference between massive encouragement and strength and debilitating confusion. As he does this, wives, submit to him. Have a, have a posture of, have a posture of, I'm going to just completely receive you. That, let that be your posture. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean if he does or says or suggests something utterly crazy or sinful, you follow him into it. Of course you don't. Of course not. But there's the posture of going, I am going to complete. Go for it. I'm with you all the way. We're going to do this. We're going to run together. That's a beautiful thing. Never heard a wife complain about such a husband. It's powerful. It's powerful. What's the purpose of marriage? I want to say a couple of things. Number one, unity. And I want to say something about equality here. Equality is important, but it's not the goal of marriage. Unity is the goal of marriage. Let me explain what I mean. If all you're fixated on is equality, you start acting weird. Everyone's trying to prove to the other that they're just as good or equal or I can do this too. And it's, it doesn't create unity. It just creates strife and weirdness. And it's a little bit like, we, I don't know if anyone brought up like this. We was brought up like this. I mean, I had a great upbringing in many ways, but there's, there's, there's some lots of good things and some odd things. Here was the odd things, that whatever your sibling had, you had to have exactly the same. Anyone, anyone else have that? Just like, like, even if you didn't want it, you know, no, no, no. Oh, oh look, oh, I've got, you pour some squash, you pour some, I've got more than that. Oh, sorry, oh, now I've got more. Okay, it's great, we're really weird. It's like everything, it was just stressful and strange and weird. I do not treat my kids the same. I love them the same. I don't treat them the same. They need completely different things. Imagine a, imagine a scenario where everyone's trying to show everyone that they're, they're as good as, they're equal. I see it for me, it's a heartbreaking scenario. When women have to spend their life proving they can do what a guy can do. It's the hor horrible. How, how, how did we produce such an environment? If you're a godly man, you do not need convincing that a woman is your equal. It's as clear as the nose on the end of your face. Of course she's your equal. She's different. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. But she's equal. So equality is important as a foundation, but not as a goal. It's a foundation. The goal is unity. We're going to learn how to run together. We're going to learn how to, as, as counterparts that God has made, equal but different, how to run together. How to step in time with one another. How to be a blessing together. How to create a, an environment of harmony and peace, and shalom that we can invite others into. That's love, isn't it? That, that's, what it, that's what it says here, back to Genesis. They're going to become one flesh. They're going to be one. There's the coming together physically, which is the most vivid expression of that in terms of the husband and wife in the one flesh union. Absolutely. But it speaks of so many, such wonderful unity on every level. And the second goal of marriage like I said earlier, through to eternity, it speaks of the gospel. You can point people to what Jesus has done through the way you are as a married couple. This is extraordinary. 
God has set things up in such a way that you can tell the story by the way you are with one another. It's, sim- it's symbolism. I think we've lo- lost a lot of symbolism in our part of the world. We're not very good at it. Give me the facts. <laughs> yeah, okay. But there's a richness about symbolism. P- painting the picture of something. You know, when I put my arm around my wife, I'm putting my arm around my wife. But I'm also just wanting to... Like, there's, there's, there's something going on there where it's, a, it's an image, it's a picture of Christ drawing his bride to himself. Her being safe. Wonderful. It's fantastic, isn't it? You think, wow, that's a, that's a great... That's a great picture. She receives my best efforts at sacrificial love. Receives them wholeheartedly. Cheers me on. Strengthens me with her gifts. She's, she's showing the picture of a wonderfully responsive church to Christ and all that he is. There's nothing passive about the church. But we are responders, aren't we? The initiative is with him. And so there's that mysterious dynamic that goes on there where where. Christ initiates, and, and then as a result of what he, how he initiates, it creates a culture. Creates, we become we're more and more like Jesus, yeah? And in a marriage, a husband will initiate and pursue and lay his life, and it creates a culture within a household, among the wife, and if God blesses with the children. It's powerful, taking a unique degree of responsibility in that regard. Let me say a few things in, in, in winding up, folks. If you do away with mutuality in your marriage, you end up with either a domineering situation or a patronizing situation or a situation where one spouse is carrying the other or a bullying scenario. All of those things are horrible and unhealthy and ungodly. And if you, if you know, this isn't, this isn't what God meant by marriage. But if you do away with the unique scenario that we looked at in today's passage, the kind of submission and headship I've spoken about today. If you do away with that, you lose your storytelling power as a marriage. You're no longer, you're no longer playing out this extraordinary, eternal relationship, which means you've lost something of the transcendence of your marriage. So it's really important that we think, think these things through. It wouldn't be right to talk today on this subject and not just make mention of singleness. I'm not going to spend long on it. I'm sure that the elders are very aware of that after this passage and, and there'll be, there'll be um, appropriate kind of settings to, to unpack the incredibly high calling of, of singleness because that tells its own story. It tells a story of a church devoted to Christ with no distractions. It's a powerful, powerful story. Paul's very realistic about marriage. He says, you know, you do spend a fair bit of time making sure that your wife's okay or your husband's okay. <laughs> it's just natural. If you don't, something's wrong. He says, if you're unmarried, you haven't got that weighing you down. You haven't got that anxiety. You can just live, un- live devotedly to, to the interests and concerns of pleasing Christ. That's a super powerful story. It's a very, very high calling. And we must make sure in doing well in marriage and church life, we don't create a scenario where you create an idol out of it and make it something that it subtly somehow becomes the pinnacle or the, or the real expression of maturity, we must do away with that because if we do, we, we have departed from the Bible's teaching. 
So it's ever so important that those of you that aren't married just hear that today and know that. that we're really not saying for one moment. We're saying glorious things about marriage, but we could do a sermon on singleness and say, and say equally glorious things. It's really important that you hear that and that you, that you know that. But to those who aren't married, um, I think as I was preparing, I had a thought about some marriages here that are just, you're, you're, they're a bit too small. Um, and I think like the word to you, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment, is that make like McDonald's and go large. All right? That's a silly little joke, but you won't forget it. So that's the point. Such a bad dad joke. You go, what did he mean? Great, it's stuck in your head. The aim isn't for your marriage. It, there's something very exclusive about marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's for the good. It's for the wider good. It's for the wider good. And ma- a marriage can create a unique environment that at different times and in different seasons, other people will be really blessed by being around. And so it's ever so important that if you're giving time and energy to building something good between yourselves, that you recognize it's not ultimately for yourselves. It's for the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. Okay, And that you open up the good things that you're building in to those people so they can enjoy the fruit what God has put into you as a couple. It's ever so important. It's often the small things, the little decisions. Scooping someone up who's in a bit of a tough season while you go out and do that together. Normal stuff. Hasn't got to be fancy, but normal stuff. To be around a couple that get on well together is a nice thing. You might be in a season where you think, no one would really, really want to be around us at the moment. All right? The time where you've got to do a bit of work on your marriage and learning how to be in harmony and, and, and walk in step because no one wants to be around a sniping married couple, to be honest. It's got to work on some stuff, maybe relay some foundations, maybe have some conversations as a result of the day, speak to some of the pastors and just get some, get some support. But fundamentally, so you can build well. Why? So you can be a blessing. The promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. It never stops with us. It stagnates if it stops with us. It's a river that flows from God. It's meant to flow into us and out from us, not become like a pond. Okay, so, so important. That's our calling and our destiny. We aren't saved by good works, folks, but we are saved for them. Okay, it's our destiny, good works. So you can use your marriage as a, as a channel of good works and blessing um, to others. And really, by way of finishing, just to encourage and exalt those husbands here. Pursue and pour yourself out for your wife. When you feel like it and when you don't. Pursue and pour yourself out for her. Settle in your heart that she is the benchmark of beauty for you. And hold to that for the rest of your life. And that's a decision you make daily. Learn to be taken in by her beauty. More and more. The Bible says that, in Proverbs, where it says about being drunk on your wife's love, the actual, literal translation is led astray. (laughs) Led astray. Work on your love lives, those of you that are married. It's ever so important. It's part of your protection part of your spiritual warfare. Never let that dynamic develop where it's kind of like the thing where, you know, one of you is enthusiastic about your love life and the other isn't. 
There might be stuff to work through, some healing and all of that. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to do a pastoral counseling session. I'm just preaching the principles. The guys who are based here can pick it up with you. But it's, it's important. It's really important for one another's encouragement and strength in your marriages. But husbands, continue to pursue and pour yourself out for your, for your wives. Know, know you have the incredible role of being uh, Christ. You both do on that level, but there's a unique expression of that in marriage that you, you want to hold to. And wives, I want to urge and encourage you um, to receive, to receive your, hus- your husband's offerings and to encourage them, to encourage them, even if they're a bit clumsy to start. I can guarantee, you know, guys being guys, some guys are going to leave this and go, this and go, right, watch me. And <laughs> it, won't be all, it won't be all you would dream of. Been there too many times to count. See what he's doing and encourage him. See what he's doing and receive that. It's a powerful thing for a man. He's much more likely to grow into all that you'd love him to be if you encourage him. And your wife is much more likely to grow into the beauty you want her to be, and I mean that in more than just physical sense, that you want her to be if if you relate to her in that way. It's a powerful thing. Just as I'm standing on my feet here, I know that for some you're on a bit of a precipice, maritally. Been there. And it's scary. I want to say to you, it's worth it. Don't give up. Keep investing in one another. I think it was Martin Luther, the, Re- the Reformation hero, who, uh, who said that he bewailed the fact that many people, through giving up one way or the other, never get to enjoy the best wine of marriage, which sometimes takes years and decades to mature. I encourage you. What you've got is sacred. What you've got is precious. What you've got tells the best story ever. Hang in there. There may be unique circumstances that you think, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, no, pick that up with the pastors, pick that up with the elders. These are principles. Don't take what I'm saying in a, in a way that's kind of, you know, ask your questions, work it through, small group leaders and pastors and elders, but at the base level, it's precious, precious stuff. So, yeah. I feel like I've preached the burden and I don't know what to do next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're going to sing together. So I'll pray for you guys. Um, Yeah. Lord, we just want to bless you and thank you so much for your kind dealings with us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you pull us out of it when we find ourselves in the miry clay, the negative dynamics. We think, how did we get here? Thank you, Lord. You pull us out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a rock. Thank you. You're the God of all encouragement. We want to pray that you banish discouragement from this room today in the name of Jesus. Lord, all discouragement is from the dark and evil one because you are the God of all encouragement. I want to pray for strength and faith to rush through the room, Lord, by the power of your spirit. Thank you that you stand in the middle of the congregation, Lord. You're among us. You know what's going on. I want to pray for your ministry of mercy and kindness. 
Lord, to married couples across this room today. Your ministry of mercy and kindness and grace. I want to pray for fresh faith, fresh inspiration, fresh vision. Fresh vision for what you're doing, the gospel story, and for one another in marriages. Come, Lord, we pray. We welcome your presence. As we sing, as we praise your name, I want to pray melt hearts freshly. I want to pray, Lord God, for couples who are in the room and sitting together, but they might as well be the other ends of the room. Their hearts have got that distant. We want to pray, Lord, for a work of your grace and mercy, Lord God, where they would, where they, they would, they would move towards each other. Lord God, we want to pray. I want to pray boldness and courage. In the name of Jesus, I want to pray the grace to go again. In the name of Jesus, we want to pray for the rescue of marriages that are in crisis. In the name of Jesus, we want to pray, Lord God, for blessing and strength to households across this church. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand together?